Welcome to the Townsend Center for the Humanities. I'm Rebecca Egger, the Associate Director, and it's a pleasure to welcome all of you and our guests for thinking about composition, creative work, scholarship, and the art of putting things together. This is the second in a series of conversations that looks critically and deeply at what it means to compose. And it's an opportunity to bring together practitioners who work in various media to reflect on what they're doing when they're creating. Um, before we get started, I'd just like to mention that next week, the artist Paul Chan will be here for two events. He'll deliver our annual UNA's lecture on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, he'll be in conversation with several Berkeley faculty members. And in our lobby, there's a postcard with details about these events. So it's my pleasure to introduce Myra Melford, who is going to kick off the conversation. Myra is a professor of music at UC Berkeley where she teaches composition and improvisational studies. She's an internationally prominent jazz pianist and keyboardist, and she also happens to have recently completed a year as a senior Townsend Fellow here at the center. So I'm pleased to turn things over to Myra who's gonna introduce our other speakers. Thanks, Myra. Thank Good afternoon. I'm happy to welcome you here, too, for the second in our Thinking About comp Composition uh, events here. Um, when I was a senior fellow here at the Townsend Center, we got into some very interesting discussions, cross-disciplinary discussions, about uh, how we compose, how we write, how we uh, make creative and scholarly work, and how are we uh, working along similar paths, and where do our paths diverge? And so we thought it would be exciting, as Rebecca said, to have some cross-disciplinary conversations about how we do what we do here. Um, before I introduce our esteemed guests, I'd like to tell you about the format for this event, uh, which is being jointly sponsored by the uh, Townsend Center, the Department of Music, and Cal Performances. Um, each of the panelists has been invited to present their work and thoughts about composition, and then we'll open up for discussion amongst the panelists and then a Q&A with the audience. I'd also like to add that Nicole Mitchell and Josh Kuhn are here this weekend to perform their collaborative piece, Spiderweb, which is being presented by Cal Performances this Sunday at 7 p.m. And they'll be on a double bill with the David Varelis Trio. On Sunday, I'll be participating in a pre-concert talk with Chewy Varela at 6 p.m and in a participatory improvisation workshop which is open to the public uh, with bassist and uh, composer Lisa Metzikapa at 3 p.m. on Sunday. Of course, all of this is um, up to the impending uh, power outage, but we're keeping our fingers crossed. Um, now I'd like to introduce our esteemed guests. Thank you all so much for coming and agreeing to participate. Nicole Mitchell is an award-winning flutist, composer, conceptualist, band leader, and educator, having emerged from Chicago's innovative music scene in the 1990s. Her artistic work celebrates contemporary Af African American culture and it's and is centered in the belief that art has the power to be transformative. A Doris Duke artist and a recipient of the Herb Alpert Award, Mitchell is renowned as the founder of the Chicago-based Black Earth Ensemble, which celebrated its 20th anniversary last year, and was the former first president of the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, or AACM. As a composer, she has been commissioned by the French Ministry of Culture, 
French American Jazz Exchange, Chicago Museum of Contemporary Art, Newport Jazz Festival, Art Institute of Chicago, Chicago Jazz uh, Festival, International Contemporary Ensemble, the Chicago Sinfonietta, and by Chamber Music America. She has been repeatedly named Top Flutist of the Year by the Downbeat Magazine Critics Poll and the Jazz Journalists Association. Her project, Mandorla Awakening, on FPE Records, was cited the top jazz album of 2017 in the New York Times. Mitchell is the William S. Dietrich II Chair of Jazz Studies and a professor of music at the University of Pittsburgh. Josh Kuhn is director of the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Southern California, where he is a professor of communication and American studies and ethnicity, and the holder of the chair in cross-cultural communication. A cultural historian, critic, journalist, and MacArthur Fellow, he writes and researches about music and the politics of cultural connection. He is an author and an editor of several books, including Audiotopia, Music, Race, in America, 2005, Songs in the Key of Los Angeles, uh, 2013, The Tide Was Always High, The Music of Latin America in Los Angeles, 2017, Double Vision, The Photography of George Rodriguez, 2018, and most recently, The Autograph, Autograph Book of LA, 2019. As a curator of music and public humanities projects, he has worked with SF MoMA, the California African American Museum, the Grammy Museum, the Getty Foundation, and others. He is the winner of an American Book Award in 2005 and a Berlin Prize in 2018. Jayuma Elliott is an assistant professor of African American Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. A former Stegner Fellow, Jayuma's poems have appeared in the African American Review, Callaloo, the Notre Dame Review, the PN Review, and other journals. She has received fellowships from the American Philosophical Society, Cave Canem, and the Vermont Studio Center. She is the author of two books of poetry, California Winter League, 2015 and Vigil 2017. She is currently at work on a monograph about rural life in, Har in, in the Harlem Renaissance. Please join me in welcoming them. I'm on sabbatical right now this semester and I'm working full time to finish the scholarly book about African American art in the 20s. Um, one of the big challenges of the past year has been turning my poetry brain off so I can channel all that time and attention into writing prose. In order to shut the poems down, I've been very intentional about what I read and when. Um, really, truly, even in a normal year, I don't read poems after 9 p.m. because if they're good, basically it sounds, yeah, I, somebody else can relate to this. Um, it's a, it, it sounds like bells ringing inside my brain. I just want to write poems in response and I just won't be able to sleep. So no poems after 9 p.m. anyway. This year I had to be even more careful about it. Um, Instead of writing poems, I've been writing poem prompts and emailing them to myself, and that's actually been really fun. Um, I've also cut way back on painting and on sewing because both of those kinetic things tend to generate these aha moments for me where I just sort of will be doing something and then will randomly solve an old problem um, from a poem draft that I've set aside often for a whole bunch of years. Um, Sewing also helps me solve other kinds of conceptual problems, particularly with scholarly arguments, though, so I try to keep a delicate balance there. Um, my poetry moratorium 
mostly worked um, until about a month ago when I got a series of emails from people I hadn't seen or talked to for decades. For one thing, it made me wonder if there was some crazy moon phase, right, uh, that was making everybody nostalgic, and then that seemed interesting to me, and I wanted to write poems about that because it was such an improbable hypothesis. Um, but also, how do you summarize 20 years or 40 years to someone who's now basically a stranger? And is that even a good idea? It was an emotional problem for me as well as a compositional challenge. And all of a sudden, these poems just swooped in en masse to respond to it. Um, here is one of them, sort of the catalyst poem. It's called Before the Small Machines. Before there were such small machines, there were augers plying their trade in every paper. Dear Scorpio, they'd write, the stars are aligned for you this week, but be suspicious of promises of sudden wealth. I spent my dimes and quarters on candy and was susceptible to flattery. I learned to swim. I wondered where you were. Before we wore or carried the small machines that track where we go, how fast our hearts are beating, before the machines got bored and started recording our sounds and playing them back for engineers in bland rooms with good acoustics, two pines were our doorway. We walked through them and disappeared. The planet I went to was wet and evergreen, and suddenly I had an accent. And now we cannot sit at this small table and simply feed in coordinates and say with certainty if or where or when our paths crossed. You have to tell me about the interim, and I have to tell you. Um, I'm not one of those people who waits for inspiration. I go out looking for it, and I structure my life so I can respond to it. There's an elementary school in my neighborhood that posts a new inspirational quote on its signboard every week. Um, one of the recent quotes was from John Muir. He said, every two pines are a doorway, so that thought worked its way into the poem. Um, and it also became part of the new book's bigger story about how these two people got separated in the first place. Thinking about composition, um, another thing that's helped me be a writer is having artists in my life when I was growing up. I had a bunch of models, both positive and negative, to learn from, and that mattered. Um, many of my family friends were professional avant-garde jazz musicians, so I got to see them on stage making music look easy, but I also knew that these same guys would play scales for hours on many, if not most, days of the week, you know, back in their studios. Um, I knew that they were so careful about their instruments and that they'd practice improvising a lot, um, both by themselves and with other musicians, sometimes in our living room when I was trying to sleep, trying to, trying to sleep and I'd like pad out there in like little footy pajamas and tell these amazing people that they really had to shut the heck up because like I was in third grade. <laughs> um, they're... Another thing is that I knew that they listened really carefully to different kinds of music and were friends with a bunch of artists from different fields. Their ability to make things look spontaneous on stage was built on a lot of hard, disciplined work, and it was fostered by being around other makers who inspired and encouraged them and brought a lot of beauty into their lives, and all of this helped them get unstuck when music got difficult. They expected to get stuck and then to get unstuck, and I think because of that, I really like it when students come to me with writer's block um, because I know it's potentially an opportunity for something really different to happen in their work. 
There are so many great fixes, um, so many things to try. It's stressful, but it's also this beautiful, beautiful gift. Um, also, I think that the fact that not writing bothers them is a sign that they may already be writers in that deeper sense, right? That it's a vocation if they choose to follow it. When I was um, preparing my notes for this event, I got a little stressed out because I felt like I was giving a lot of implicit advice. So here is an overtly bossy new poem that seemed like the right thing to do to just declare. Um, it's called Fox and Rose and Watering Can and Cloche and Stirrups. Please don't talk to me about surface tension. The day I learned to draw unicorns was the day it all went south. On the playground, sirens. On the page, a pink beast with carrots in its mouth. Please don't talk to me about weather. The wind stopped because I'd trapped it in my hair. I'd lured it in with promises of honeycomb. Don't talk to me about the floorboards. Their provenance bores me to tears. The last time I cried, the bamboo vowed to curse this village and all its artisanal cheese and its deep pockets. Don't talk to me about the slope. The sweat dried on us there. I well remember all those awkward footholds. Talk to me about the fox. Tell me about the one red rose that grew and spoke with such abandon that you blushed and covered it. Tell me about the cloche. Tell me about the freckles on your hands as you slid it in place, star maps, and where you ride when half the world is sleeping and the other half is dazed by sun. I keep wanting to write a poem about Prince, right? And it hasn't happened, and this is a little Prince poem. I'm like, okay, maybe. Getting close, getting close. Um, yeah, more things about composition. Um, I quickly jot down poem ideas all the time. Um, I really hate losing a poem idea, so those tiny notes are really crux for me. Um, but I generally need lots of unstructured time to actually finish poems. Um, Making time for writing has looked different for me at different points in my career. For the decade when I was working eight to five jobs, I tended to read during my commute, and I did something called hermiting. That basically meant that I'd block every other weekend. I wouldn't schedule anything with anyone. I'd just sort of follow the energy of the days and see where it took me. And often that would mean I'd just go out and do errands or go on some adventure. But just as often, um, I'd spend the time puttering my, around my apartment or taking walks. And it was really freeing, and that allowed a lot of poems to happen. I think that you build trust with your art form. When you make time for it and show up, that's a win, even if you don't make anything, or if you make a poem that's not very good. It's more than establishing a writing habit. That's, I think, something a little different. I can tell the poems to chill out for a year right now because I've banked many years of steady practice and also reciprocity, maybe also respect. Um, I want to share some things about failure and composition, too, because I think it's important, and I don't think we talk about failure enough. When I was a kid, I sang in a couple of choirs, including a jazz ensemble, and to encourage me, family friends kept saying that I should write lyrics for these jazz songs that I liked that didn't have any words yet. Um, I loved the lyrics to Red Top, and I loved the lyrics to Don't Get Around Much Anymore, and I wanted to make something cool like that. Um, so I tried, right? And I just failed over and over again. I failed. I've never written decent song lyrics. I've helped other people do it, but I just can't do it myself. Um, I think part of what makes me a poet is that I'm so willing to try things like that and fail. Um, 
I love the form, and I'd much rather fail at a poem than succeed at most other things. It's humbling, but it gives me a lot of energy. Um, another thing I wanted to share, because it usually takes me a long time between two to five years to finish projects and also to feel comfortable putting them out in the world, I'm always working on multiple things at the same time. So from the outside, it looks like I write really fast. Um, I don't, I just have a lot of things in the pipeline. Here's another new poem. I stole this title for it from my husband. At breakfast um, the other week, he was describing what our dogs had been up to before I woke up. They're tiny, but they're hooligans. Um, and I was like, that would be an amazing title. I didn't know if it was for a short story or a poem, so I just wrote it down at the top of a blank page and waited for an idea to match. Um, and then, you know, all those weird emails, right? This crazy catalyst in my life. Um, how the trouble started. He was supposed to say, I saw your name on that petition about the school. He was supposed to fess up. So the land would curve away like a sickle, and she would wander the aisles of the import store, allowance in hand. More? He was supposed to say, I know you snuck away from that wedding reception to cry in the potting shed. That her mauve polyester hems dragged through spilt peat moss. He was supposed to say, the day you left, I wandered the marsh. Your parents are still children, and mine are still mountains. And in July, I want to dance around the patio with lit sparklers again and yell at the sky until it's dark enough to see the sparks. He was supposed to say, we can wind it back like kite string and learn again to fish and put all our treasure in a carved wood box. I write a lot and I revise a lot and I draw and throw out a ton of work. When I start writing a book, I'm usually wrong about it, like completely wrong at least twice. Um, there's always a question at the center and that stays the same, but what changes is how I try to answer it. Um, so I've got these two books of poems in progress that I'm mostly trying to ignore right now. One book is, yeah, <laughs> is about collaboration. Um, it's called Blue and Green after the Miles Davis song and also kind of after Maggie Nelson's book Bluets. Um, its question is, what do we owe one another? Hemland is the totally new book that just started happening, you know, this last month. Um, its title means homeland in Swedish, um, and it's about counterfactuals. And its central question is, what if we didn't come back? Um, it was really humbling to have all these new poems show and poems ideas show up because they made me realize that my original idea for Hemland, all of my ideas actually were just wrong, flat out wrong. Um, I was born in Sweden, and I thought the book was going to be about what it meant for my family to come back to the US. I had this whole plan worked out, y'all. I had a table of contents. I had all these notes. It was just, I was so excited. I'm like, someday off in the, off in the future, when I'm done with this scholarly book, I'm going to start writing this thing. Um, yeah, I thought the book was about light and seasonal changes and jazz songs, and I was so excited. I was going to write all these jazz ekphrastic poems. Um, and. Then the new poems made me realize that the emotional heart of the book is actually about leaving Marin County, just north of here, where I also lived as a child. It's about the long reverb of much smaller geographical changes. Um, so yeah, not what I had planned, not at all what I'd planned. Um, here's a new poem about homesickness. It's called Wherein I Ask the Experts. 
and the musicologist tells me about 17th century Spain. To Thessaly, I would go and suffer there, he says, so as to erase the visions of that beast. Wherein the survivalist is at a rest stop 500 miles from Rabbit Stick, writing quickly, he says, sending many hugs. He dreamed about corruption and woke up in Winnemucca. And when he considers the past, he's still in uniform, standing by a T-37, and the edges of the photo are crisp in his pocket. Wherein the past rocks underfoot like a loose paver, and fall clenches its fist. The music, musicologist and I text about betrayal, which he calls fashy, and I drink too much coffee. Wherein the survivalist says, grief is like crossing an ice-cold river in a rowboat wherein the musicologist reminds me that it's traditional not to write longingly about other places, but only about homesickness for Israel. Um, some of the lines quoted at the beginning of the poem are from an Inquisition-era Spanish poem by Antonio Enriquez Gomez called When I Consider That Glorious Past of Mine. One of my MFA professors told us students to read like thieves, and I think it's really good advice. Um, I'm always looking for techniques and patterns to remix in my own way. I put detailed notes in books about things that somebody else did that I want to try. And I also reverse engineer poems all the time, both for fun and to make writing prompts for when I get stuck or just don't have any compelling ideas. Um, I might do something like count out the syllables in each line and write a poem that matches that syllable count, or I might try to parallel someone's syntax or use the same density of rhyme or assonance or figurative language, the similes and metaphors, um, or I might nest poem elements in a particular way. Um, here is a reverse engineered prompt based on the epigraph to Hemland, which crazily, that stayed the same. I knew what the book's epigraph was and also the cover art I wanted before I knew much else about the project, it turns out. Prompt goes like this. Compare something you learn to at least two inanimate objects. Repeat the same word or phrase at the beginning of at least two of your lines. Use at least one quotation and at least one exclamation point. Also, make a direct appeal to an abstraction. So here's the epigraph itself. It's from Laura Jensen's poem called Happiness, which is brilliant and beautiful. The way the garden shines through, the flat, through fence slats as you pass, the way the big moon rises with an edge in shadow, you see that once there was happiness. This is the way to call it back. Come back, come back right away. I am giving up neatness for you. Um, I also make a lot of found poems. I fell in love with Annie Dillard's beautiful book of found poems called Morning Likes, Mornings Like This, in part because she explains the kind of crazy strict rules she gave herself when she was remixing other people's words. Um, found poems are really useful for me because they force me uh, to get out of my usual vocabulary. When I use other people's words, my rhythms are different, and that's important. Um, I love repetition but I don't want to spend my career basically writing the same poem or the same kind of poem over and over again. So I want to finish um, my little moment here with a new tiny poem about childhood that's probably also about writing. It's called Time and Materials. The planet I went to had three simultaneous Fridays. On one, I was dearly beloved. On another, I gathered signatures to save coral. 
On the third, I was a spider, weaving, weaving webs, working on fractals. On Thursdays, it rained. We used hammers to punctuate our discontent. Imagine the trees. Imagine the squat buildings in primary colors. In all the parks, there were upturned leaves and dark berries. On Tuesdays, I tied ribbons in my hair and waited. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Hi. Um, hi, everybody. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant time you turned the mic on. That too. Yeah, but that. that was really amazing. And so spider webby. Yeah. So if the power goes out, we're good. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I was in graduate school here, so and I was a graduate student, some fellow resident, something at the Townsend Center many, 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 many years ago, so it's really cool to be back and to see some familiar faces. Um, and really an honor to be up here with all, all three of you and to, to be here really because of the work uh, of Nicole, so really happy. Um, I'm gonna read a really short little attempt at summarizing some things and then I'll, 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 go, I'll go off on some other points. But, um, so my, my work is first and foremost rooted in a practice that I've been, get in, been engaged with since I've been very young, which is listening to music. Which is to say, listening to sounds that other people make and experiencing those sounds as they enter my own body and bones as vibrations and become understood as music in my brain. And then being made to feel things because of other people's music entering my body, my bones, my brain and tissue. And then being made to feel things, and then it becomes an extension of my life and a way to understand how I literally move through the world and am moved by the world. Someone else's voice becomes a voice that helps me understand myself or helps me understand the world that that voice belongs to or the world that voices imagines or dreams or suggests. I've come to understand that one of the primary reasons that I love music so much is because it is a platform of relationality, a connecting force between self and other, the individual and the social, between cultures, between cities and countries and languages. When we listen, we engage with that which is not us, a not us that becomes the who we are. Music is how we understand that the other is within us, that who we think we are is shaped by the music of those who are not us. And as a result, music has the potential to be a kind of social action. Making it, listening to it, opens up new modes of being, new potentials for knowing, for relating, for being together in difference. I started DJing at a young age, in junior high, mostly playing junior high and high school dances, because I loved being able to revel in that relationality through my own musical connections mixing songs to help others feel and dance and move. Because I love then and I love now what music can assemble and what assemblies music can make possible. Uh, and when I would DJ these dances, uh, I would literally take, I, I'm not a musician, this is important for this conversation, I, I don't play, I don't read. Um, we can get into that, what that means. Um, and I would take my father's receiver 
uh, stereo receiver and the two speakers that he had in the living room um, and the turntable. And I would take that to the school dance um, every time. And I would find ways with a Radio Shack mixer to try to make mixes uh, on his turntable and a cassette deck um, to make people dance. Uh, and that became what I did um, for most of my, my youth uh, into my young adultness, uh, was DJing. And in high school, that got me a reputation for um, being a musical person. And recently, I went back to my high school, high school that I share with, with Professor Saul here. Um, and I went back as a, as a scholar in residence for a week and taught at my old high school, which was pretty great. I highly recommend it. Exhausting, by the way. Um, and m the m college counselor, who's still there, um, came up to me and gave me an envelope. And in the envelope was a, um, a typewritten document that was the note that she sent out to colleges that I might apply to about who I was, like a, a summary, like a kind of confidential document. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. It's too painful. But I will read you one paragraph <laughs> where she says, quote, Josh thinks of himself as a music person, yet has not found in himself any talent for instrumental music <laughs> nor singing. He loves all types of music and has a collection of some 800 record albums, from classical to Irish to rock to heavy metal. Not only does he subscribe to the obvious Rolling Stone, but to musician, stereo review, spin, and record works. Thus, he considers himself to be on the cutting edge of music. He considers himself to be on the cutting edge of music. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is still true. Um, Josh shares his expertise through album critiques and concert reviews in the Harvard News, our newspaper, and as a DJ at local parties. So some of that was accurate. Um, actually, most of it's accurate. Um, and so I'd say most of my career, most of my life has been living within that, of thinking myself as a music person, um, wanting badly to be on the cutting edge of, th of things, um, and collecting, and living through the act of collecting and living through the acts of listening, but also living through taking the things that I collect, records and cassettes that I would gather, and find ways to put them in dialogue with each other, um, to entertain people, to make bodies move in, a way, in ways that they weren't moving before, to bring different um, to bring different bodies together in a common space like this one, um, and to see what new languages, new ideas, what new emotions, new histories could be created by bringing different things together. And on this Radio Shack mixer that I had, I don't know if any of you remember these Radio Shack mixers, really basic um, two-input mixers, um, that would allow you to put uh, one song playing on input one and one song playing on input two, and you had this little horizontal thing that allowed you to go back and forth between input one and input, input two. And that horizontal thing um, was the crossfader. And the crossfader has become probably my primary methodology for how I think about what I do. Whether or not it's composing or not is, I think, something we, it's good to talk about what these terms mean. Um, but I, th I do think of it as a tool of composition. Um, and the, the, the crossfader, that horizontal toggle, is the thing that allows you to go from whatever song is on input one to whatever song is on input two, to go back and forth between one and two, to mix them together without erasing one or the other. 
And this is crucial. So when it was invented in the 1970s, and it was invented actually by two people at roughly the same time, Richard Wadman, who was a, um, an engineer uh, for a British tech company. And he invented the crossfader not for music, but to control energy flow uh, and to figure out how you could keep energy sustained between two separate inputs without the original inputs erasing or canceling each other out, basically. How do you juggle and sustain energy? Um, and uh, a guy who eventually uh, became known as Grandmaster Flash um, in the South Bronx, who made his own crossfader roughly at the same time that Richard Wattman actually took out a patent on the crossfader. Uh, in the South Bronx was rewiring a traditional uh, vertical um, two-channel mixer and uh, just kind of rigged up his own horizontal crossfader to allow him uh, to juggle beats better, to allow him to isolate percussive sections of disco and funk tracks, uh, and to sustain uh, rhythmic language uh, by juggling between input one and input two without, again, ever erasing one or the other. Uh, and both of them were interested in the, 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 the sustenance of a sound coming from different sources, um, and also interested in connection. And so the crossfader, for me, has always been this tool that changed the way I thought about music. It, it meant that if I was playing a song um, out, I was thinking about it as that song, but I was really always thinking about where's it going to lead next? How am I going to connect it to whatever is queued up in my ear? And so crossfading and DJing is always about past, present, and future. You're always queuing up a song. You already know what's coming next, even though the people listening don't. Um, you already know what's happened, and you know what's happening in the present moment. And so you have to find a way to say, how am I going to go from this past moment, this present moment, into this future moment? How am I going to connect these dots? Which means instead of listening for a song as a holistic piece, you're often listening for that moment, that one little second of a, trump, you know, a trumpet squeal that will allow a, a Frank Sinatra um, recording to go into a Drake recording, right? The, all you need is that one moment. And then that moment of connection allows you to go from one to the other, again, without erasing either of them. And this became a, a really important way, uh, a really important part of the way that I think about the work that I do, is focusing on points of connection, um, thinking about pieces of music on their own terms, but also about what they contain that allows them to be in dialogue with another piece of music. Um, that could come from a totally different place, totally different style, totally different tempo, totally different language, et cetera. Um, but also crossfading is about mixing without erasing. Mixing without erasing. Uh, and so in that way, it becomes a, a way not, of course, just to talk about music, but a way to think about questions of identity, questions of cultural difference. Um, where in the United States, our dominant metaphor, in the 20th century at least, um, for thinking about cultural diversity or multiculturalism uh, would be the melting pot. Right? America is a great melting pot. The melting pot um, is actually a musical metaphor. It's actually, it actually comes from um, a fictitious symphony um, uh, that is part of a play um, uh, written by the British playwright, Isra British playwright Israel Zangwill about a Jewish-American immigrant composer who's trying to con compose the ultimate symphony of America that would be the great melting pot symphony. Uh, and so we get this idea from that play of, and it's actually a false idea that we've inherited, right? We think of the melting pot as synonymous with democracy or multiculturalism. It's not, I would argue, um, but it's the opposite. It's actually the melting of difference into one, 
right? The many into one, the production of, as that play put it, a singular American race. And so the, the, the melt was the 20th century, dominant 20th century tool for thinking about identity and culture, melting into Americanness, melting difference away into the assimilative um, uh, promise of American culture. Crossfading is not melting, it's mixing without erasing. It's bringing difference together in such a way that difference does not have to go away to produce anything singular. In fact, a great DJ set, uh, what makes a great DJ set a great DJ set is there is no singularity. That's the, that's the death of a great DJ set, right? That you do, cannot produce one singular sand. You must always be beat juggling, juggling tempos, and taking people places they never thought they'd go. This is the, the great joy is that people are dancing to a song that they know and love and they're comfortable with, it fits their sense of who they are and their sense of self. And then by finding that poetic connection, you can take that room into a place they never thought that they would go. And they're listening and thinking about things um, that they never thought that they would listen to or think about, but are doing so on the terms of familiarity because there was always that grounding that started with input one. So juggling difference. Um, Martin Buber, of course, uh, talks about these ideas, for example, not as a DJ, though I love the idea of Martin Buber as a DJ, but I and thou, right? Input one, input two, all living is meeting. That's a hip hop sensibility. All living is meeting. All living is meeting. And what connection hunting can do. Uh, Edward Said, another record I would put on if we were playing records, um, who said, we are, so to speak, of the connections. We are of the connections. That's just an idea. I don't know how to prove that, but it's, a, it's something that I aspire to think through. Um, we are of the connections. Um, to crossfade thoroughly, um, I would say requires at least four key prerequisites that I think about musically, but also in terms of the work that I do as a, as a writer, scholar, curator, et cetera. One is you have to be a historian, um, or you at least have to think historically. Um, in DJ parlance, this is, you know, you have to dig through the crates, right? You can't just put any random record on. You gotta know the record really, really, really well before you even put it on in order to mix it with something else. It's not a natural thing. You must actually study it. You must know your sources. So you have to have an archival relationship, a historiographic relationship with a body of, of sound and a body of music and a body of culture and a body of knowledge. Um, second thing is you have to develop listening as, a, um, as an art, but also as a critical skill, a critical tool. Um, and I know this is not news to anybody in this room, uh, and, in, and kind of wonderfully in the last 15, 20 years, the theories and studies of listening as a critical act, listening as a social act have, have blossomed far, uh, which really used to be in a way the domain of, of musicians, I would say, and also maybe acoustic um, scientists. But now listening has become much, much more accepted as a broader rubric of critical thought uh, of how to engage with the world. And crossfading for me is a way that puts pressure on that, that you have to always be on your toes and always listening and not listening passively, if that's even possible, but listening for something. Where am I gonna go next? How am I gonna connect these things? What could I connect? Third thing is that the goal is always about creating a dialogue. And so my work is really, really um, invested in finding points of connection between communities that might not be in dialogue, um, geographies that might not be in dialogue, genres, practices, and finding a way to create that dialogue in a way that, again, respects where both of those original sources are coming from, brings them together without erasing either one of them. 
And the fourth thing is that you're, you're like with any dance floor um, that one might be DJing for, um, the goal is to create new kinds of assemblies, unexpected publics that could potentially lead to new kinds of collective actions. That utopia of the dance floor as every dance scholar has ever written, right? That, that a song can bring people together who might not ever rub elbows or knees together before. Um, and so there's a, the, bar, the high bar of the crossfade is that you are always mixing and finding points of connection in order to create potential new assemblies and new publics. Um, so composition, the title of the panel, I think, is thinking about composition, which is really interesting. And I started in my head thinking like, do I think about composition? I don't know. I mean, I do. I, of course I do, we all do. But I started thinking it was also important to talk about as thinking through composition, right? And what does the act of composing, like the idea of composing as its own method of thought, as its own um, philosophical practice, as its own way of knowing. Um, and for me as a non-musician, I've learned a lot from musicians about how to do that. Um, and I admittedly, probably over-romanticize the work of musicians. And I sit at their feet and study them. <laughs> Nicole's laughing. Uh, uh, I, sit, I sit at their feet because, because I marvel at the level of thought that, and, and, and knowledge that can be made and produced through performance and through the act either of composition or improvisation as composition. Um, and so I try to think about thinking through composition in terms of cities. I, a lot of my work is based on cities, Los Angeles um, specifically, where I work with, um, I've done three big projects with the LA Public Library, all based on these massive special collections of, you know, uh, 100,000 pieces of sheet music about Los Angeles or 30,000 restaurant menus uh, in Los Angeles or this, this most recent project um, of over about 2,000 autographs. Um, that were part of the library's collection, and then figure out how to compose stories and scholarship based on these pieces that are in the crates, like I would with records, and then figure out how to crossfade them with other texts to produce new stories and new ideas. Um, when I, I did a project a couple years ago with SFMOMA um, and the San Francisco Public Library, where I worked, where we, we, were, we were challenged, I was commissioned to think about musical history in San Francisco and any social or, or cultural crisis in San Francisco. And I, I started to work on, you know, a really easy one to solve, which is gentrification and neighborhood displacement. And I, I asked a group of, of musicians in San Francisco who had never met before, never played before, if they'd be willing to come together at branch libraries and show up to play for an audience of people. Uh, actually, let me rephrase that, to come together in front of an audience of people. And, and I would give them a piece of sheet music about San Francisco from the 1800s, from the archives of, of, of SFPL, and the audience, the performance was the audience would watch them figure out if they were going to play anything. Basically, we would watch musicians like meet themselves for the first time, meet each other for the first time, like, oh, where'd you play? Oh, didn't I see you at that gig? Oh, yeah, yeah, you, you played with so-and-so, and like, how are we going to do this? And that was what we were watching. This was really like just selfishly, because I was like, this is my favorite thing on earth to watch. Um, and so I got to ask other people to do it and use the rehearsal, the musical rehearsal, as a way of thinking about, is the musical rehearsal for non-musicians a way of thinking about other rehearsals? 
Is the musical rehearsal a gateway into new kinds of social rehearsals? If we could rehearse a city the way we rehearse a song, will that make new cities? And so I just, I, I was, as we, as we were sitting here, I tried to dig up really quick this one little bit that I thought might be fun to share. And this is just some transcription that, of what the musicians were saying to each other during the rehearsals. Uh, just so you know, they were um, uh, Idris Akamore, Marcus Shelby, Mina Choi, Diana Gameros, uh, really, really wonderful, um, and, and Akil uh, Mestayer, um, from all different backgrounds, all different neighborhoods in San Francisco. All right, here's some of them. I think that's a chorus. Why don't we transform it? Let's just do it piece by piece, but who's gonna lead? Who's gonna lead? Should we have tensions in this? I like it unfinished. Let's just do it unfinished. It shouldn't be finished. Do you like it? I do. But let's try it again. Let's cut that. That's a nice tag. Yeah, but cut that. But what if the tensions in these songs is actually the tension in the city? Let's, 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 let's have more bass, and the bass can build tension just like the sound of urban renewal. Let's like cross melodies and cross rhythms, do some sharp fives. If I start with a conga and a cajon, then we're honoring the mission. How many different versions of this same text are we gonna do? I mean, each moment can have different shapes. I mean, all these different worlds are possible. I feel like you're doing a different rhythm than what we're doing. <laughs> I'll follow you guys. I'm playing what's written. We got out the tub, now we gotta get back in the tub. This is like the Golden Gate Bridge going Asia, going Africa. No, 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 it's going Chinese. Instead of melody and time and playing it straight, but why don't we do it thinking about shapes? Can we play the chords first and then vamp? I need to play the chords. <laughs> Can we just stick to the published notation? I mean, are we supposed to respect these things or innovate on top of them? Do we respect what's there? Do we move in? Do we take it back? What I'm hearing from you, though, is that you want more freedom. Yeah, that's what you're hearing from me, more freedom. And so in watching rehearsals like that, for me, the process of making music becomes a way to think, and this is no news to anyone who makes music, and particularly in an ensemble setting, and certainly no news to jazz musicians, that the making of music becomes a way of thinking about making other things, bigger things. Um, and that's what fuels a lot of my work. I got more to say, but I'll, I'll stop there. Turn it over to the great Nicole Mitchell. a lot for me to work with, actually. <laughs> I was really mesmerized by watching all of your eyes um, when I was hearing them read. And like, I feel like, I don't think they look like that when we play music. <laughs> <laughs> but just the kind of way of, of hearing, maybe it's a way of hearing that's different with words than, than it is with music. And it was really fascinating for me to see that, um, to see your eyes. Um, so there's been a lot of things that I'm ricocheting off of in my head right now. Um, there was talk of sewing, there was talk of 
spirals and spiders. And actually, our work is um, titled Spiderweb. And I guess I can start there. Um, I was always fascinated with spiders. I would always, at, you know, right? If, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when the sun is going down, the energy of the day changes, you know, like the light gets very orange and like there's kind of a feeling of busyness right before it gets dark. But that's the time when spiders make their webs. So they make their webs as the sun is going down so that when it gets dark, that's when they, they're going to trap their food. <laughs> so I used to always be out during that time watching spiders weave their webs, but I didn't necessarily... Um, like being called a spiderweb myself, <laughs> which is what I was, that was one of the things that I was called as a youth um, living in Anaheim. We moved from Syracuse, New York, from an all, like, I went from an all-black school to an all-white school, and that was one of the results was that my hair was weird <laughs> for a lot of um, other young people. So this thing that we're doing on Sunday is titled Spiderweb because it explores some of that experience. And um, Josh really does an amazing job of kind of like cross-fading into the history of like Orange County um, and how that relates with, um, there's some kind of undercurrents of like in, intense racial uh, history there, um, but also this idea of music and my own musical lineage, whereas um, another thing that was brought up, this idea of crossfades, which I've never thought about it that way, but this is something I've been very interested in as well, is I reject the melting pot, but I'm very focused at like as an artist on this question of can art be transformational and can music be transformational and so one thing I'm fascinated with with all of us talking about improvisation is can I create as a composer can I create a space where people can keep and maintain their authenticity in their own musical language and yet we can have a conversation without all of us trying to melt into this other language that we're supposed to be able to communicate on. So this idea of coexistence and of contrasting entities, which I call colliding duality, which was the premise of one of the pieces that I wrote, the Mandorla Awakening Project, um, which each musician kind of is bringing their own tradition. Some others, two musicians bringing like um, some differing traditional Japanese traditions like shakuhachi flute and shamisen, which are completely different, have their own original story and way that, you know, places where they've been developed and things like that, but then putting that with um, a vocalist who grew up on the west side of Chicago, you know, in Baptist church, and maybe a few classical musicians, one that also plays the banjo, and you know, a guitarist that plays the oud, and, and like how can we bring this all together and make a conversation through music? That's something I'm really fascinated with. I love that music, since I was a child, since that experience um, of feeling uh, and as an outsider and an outcast, like as a child, music became this 
place of safety and sanctuary where this idea that it was another realm, not a physical realm, but a realm where I could be and I could create and no one, I could be safe, no one could hurt me there and I also, nothing could be taken away from me. Like I could be there and um, it, I could make whatever world I wanted to make. So again, connecting with what you all were talking about, my way of phrasing that is the idea of bridging the familiar with the unknown. So like to have this idea of like come where people are, but then to take them, you know, on a journey, like through the music. And I've been very interested in that. Um, so just as you all talk so much about music and inspiration of music, words have been very central to my own creating in creating music. So narrative, poetry, prose have Every song that I pretty much have has some kind of story behind it or some kind of narrative that really was there before I created the music. So like the way you listed that rehearsal and, and how the musicians were thinking about creating this music, I definitely relate to that idea because sometimes I will start with a poem or I'll start with something and then I'll want to express it. Sometimes I'll work with other spoken word artists that I feel are probably more powerful than I am in, in getting my ideas across. And um, a few times I recorded with my own, <laughs> with my own voice, with the music. Um, but that's another aspect that I'm trying to develop is actually sharing the words more in their own written form which is something that I'm still a little nervous about, but um, trying to work on. Um, so I guess I will start, because I brought that up, I'll start with a piece that has a poem in it that I have, um, and it, this is from the Mandorla Awakening Project that I just mentioned, and... So this piece started with the poem and the ensemble is performing it. Um, and the, I, it's called Staircase Struggle. So conceptually, I was looking at a lot of different ideas with that project. I was asking the question, what is progress? And looking at how a lot of times we focus on progress as technological advancement. But what about us treating each other better? Like, have we really made any progress <laughs> with that? You know, um, so the title Staircase Struggle is this idea of looking at hierarchy and how everybody's struggling, you know, struggling to get to the top. That is, has, there's no words in the poem that talk about that at all, but hopefully um, you feel what I'm trying to say. And hopefully this won't play too loud. I, I'm hoping I got a good volume to start it. Over and over and over again. And I thought if maybe we could slow down and really see it, we could understand ourselves a little better and even make a change. Some had the fortune to stick our hands in the black soil. We instinctively learned that dark 
generation into the next of the same womb. It seems, it seems the one thread we hold to pull our loved ones dangling over the cliffs close to parallel poverty. The combining walls close in quickly. There is the timeless resistance from death of the soul. So, um, I like exploring a lot of different, it's kind of like, not quite like the DJ, but I am interested in a lot of different styles of music, so a lot of times musicians, I think more than other artists, like you think about like writers, visual artists, dance. Um, a lot of times you expect experimentalism, you expect like this idea of something new. But, for, but a lot of us, I mean, we listen to music, right? We listen to music when you're washing dishes, when you're in the car, when you're <laughs> doing different things. And so a lot of times there's an expectation that music should be kind of more, it's more of a conservative expectation that, that people might have a lot of times with music. And different musicians will also go through a thing where they'll decide, well, I'm going to go down this direction and I'm just going to keep going this way because I'm trying to make a statement and I'm trying to get deeper and deeper into this development of this idea. I've never been <laughs> that kind of musician. For me, I because it's that safe space and it's because it's like a space for freedom, 
I love exploring whatever it is that I'm attracted to and also mixing those things up in however way that I w would like. And just don't tell me I can't, you know, because <laughs> that's just how I've um, developed my work. And so there will be a lot of different stylistic shifts that might happen within one piece or from one album to the next or one piece to the next. Um, whereas somebody else might have a specific sound and concept that they're developing. But I just love this idea of uh, like endless possibility. Like that's really important to me. And I think that's what's allowed me to live my life the way that I live it. And also in order to overcome different obstacles and to know that music can be a path that you can actually grow as a person, you know, that you're gonna meet certain challenges that the music is gonna like force you to be a better person in certain areas. And I've definitely experienced that, which has been super rewarding, you know. Um, so I wanna have time for all of us to talk. You know, I don't wanna take up too much time. So I'm just gonna play, one thing that's become really important to me more recently is this idea of collaboration. You know, and then we have this project we're collaborating on for Sunday and we could talk more about that. But also I have a project coming up I've done a lot of work inspired by the science fiction writer Octavia Butler. And if you haven't read her work, I would definitely check out Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents right now because it literally is about California right now. But she wrote it in the 80s. <laughs> I mean, it literally is about right now. And it's, it'll be scary like if you open it up and read it. But, but one of the things that happens in that book is there's a woman in the book that creates a new religion. And this new religion is to help people to, to adjust to the situations that they're in where they have to really make a lot of um, transitions and to really embrace change and that nothing that they were used to is, is gonna really still be there, you know? So me, me and a friend of mine who's a great uh, vocalist and performance artist and composer, we wrote this piece together called Earthseed. So Earthseed is the name of the spiritual text in the book. So we wrote our own and then we made music for it. But it's the first project that we're completely, like when people ask us like, well, who did what? Who wrote this or who did that part or who did this song? We're just gonna be like, no, we both did all of it. You know, and this idea of not taking like this individual ownership of something and like really like, because I feel like that's the future. I think we have to learn to not be so individually driven like that we have to have this name and we have to have this identity that in credit for, for each little thing we do. I think we're kind of raised to do that and for us to really create a new world, we're gonna have to learn how to create collectively again, you know, um, in different ways. So this is like my first project really doing, it was really fun. Um, so this piece is called Whole Black Collision, W-H-O-L-E, so Whole Black Collision. Uh, and it's very visual, I think. 
I don't think I'm gonna have time to play the whole thing, but I'll just play a little bit of it, and then um, hope we can all talk together. There. <laughs> okay. I have the mic. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much to all of you. There's so much there to continue to talk about. I wonder if the three of you have some questions for each other or things <laughs> you'd like to comment on. Um, and, and or we can go ahead and open it up to the audience. I have a question. Go ahead, go for it. From something that you said, you were talking about music and, and endless possibility. Uh, I don't know, about 10 years ago maybe, um, a jazz cellist named Fred Katz, who uh, I had been 
writing about and working with for a long time when he passed uh, in, his, in his late 90s um, was inviting people to come sit with him during his final days. And when I went to sit with him, he played, he, he had a recording on of, of an album, of a record he did in the, in the 60s. And, he, and he, as he's listening to it, eyes closed, his fingering is still going as he's, as he's listening. And it's just like this emotional, I'm crying, it's a beautiful moment, watching him, no words, just heavy breathing. Peace stops, and he turns and looks at me, and, and, and I'm thinking, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard, and he says, we could have gone deeper. And I'm just wondering, like, <laughs> is that endless possibility? Does that ever become, is, it, is, is there... Perfectionism thing? Not, but, but a, or a constant, like, is the flip side of that constant dissatisfaction, that, 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 that you're not, there's always more. Does that, part of it too? Yeah, because when I, when, I, when I first started like composing, I could write a whole night of music in like 30 minutes. <laughs> like for, for improvisers, you know what I mean? Like I just write like six or seven tunes out, bam, 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 or whatever. And then it's like the more you do it, then you're just like, why is this taking longer and longer and longer <laughs> to do? You know what I mean? And then in the feeling like it can get intimidating when you have a new project and you're in your like, okay, I want you have all these ideas of what you want to express and can I actually do it? So I think that that does happen. But I think it's probably the same for writing, right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like one of the things that <coughs> kept me sane in writing is that um, it's actually like musicians talking about exactly that. Um, a friend of our family's is this guy. Um, he's now deceased, but um, a saxophonist named um, Julius Hemphill. And oh, yeah. Yeah, you know Julius. <laughs> yeah, be, right. So he would, um, one of the things that, that he would just say that was just, was that he, um, he couldn't ever make music like the music that was in his head. Like he couldn't make the, that set of sounds. Like he just he and that that kept him motivated. Um, it was weird because like the last concert that he did, when you were telling that story, it was just flashing back. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't there. Um, and so the last the last concert he played um, was like this insane, transcendent sort of thing. And I feel kind of like he was able to let go after that because it finally matched, right? And it was this eerie thing. Like everybody who was there was just like, what the hell just happened? Wow. Like we've never, and, I, and I've listened to recordings. There's this totally crap quality recording of it, but like even on that you can hear, like he did, he actually hit it. Like he finally got that. Wow. So it's like this beautiful thing, right? Um, we get this almost divine feeling restlessness. Like it wasn't, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't quite that, but how awesome is that, right? We're not done. Yeah, restless is definitely a good word. I know I'm totally restless and I have a lot of anxiety and that all comes out of the music. <laughs> I had a question for Josh. When I was um, listening, I was listening, and I was thinking, listening to Whole Black Collision. I was like, what would you crossfade with it? <laughs> <laughs> start with whale songs right <laughs> something going on there yeah the pauses that could work. Yeah. the pauses in it yeah i'll start there see where that goes <laughs> underwater there's something kind of submarine yeah about that piece 
I love the way you said maybe we should be rehearsing the creation of the city the way musicians rehearse a song. I thought that was amazing. Like, I mean, people, they'll come up with a draft, right? But how do you actually practice experiencing something before it's created? Like, you know, um, I think we do do that in the arts, but how do we do, how can we do that? with certain things that are so impactful that are going to have such a, a big impact, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of times when people think about these, lar these, these seemingly impossible to solve social crises, right? right? Um, we often go to the point of, like, we don't have models for it. So we have to, you know, what do we do? And, and there are models. I mean, music is one of those models as a guide of, as you you know, very beautifully put it, of, of individuals coming together to make something collective together while remaining individuals and maintaining their voices as part of it. I mean, this is a long history of right. talking about this in, in, in jazz in particular, but we have those models. The, the challenge is how do we actually translate them? Exactly. Right? And that, that's what I really struggle with, where I feel like, okay, I gotta figure this out better. It's funny, because I always feel like with music, it's so, like you're not gonna destroy anything. Like if you build a building and you don't have a good foundation, that's kind of messed up. <laughs> yeah. right. That reminds me, my husband made a quip the other day. He was he was talking with a, an old college classmate. They'd, they'd lost touch for a long time and somehow got back in contact. And Steve's response was, well, you know, if I don't do my job well, somebody just goes away with the wrong idea about Chaucer. Whereas you, like, you're actually a nuclear engineer. <laughs> like, the city's gone if you're wrong, right? Yeah. I, I think, you know, the, that moment, that, that amazing moment in that, in that workshop sort of creation session, um, that moved me too. But part of it is just because I love analogy, right? Like, so much of what I do is I, I love trying to translate things, trying to move things from one form into another. Mm -hmm. It's like the best thing and part of what's best about it, I think, what is just like always so um, hard and seems worthwhile is that they don't fit exactly, right? Like trying to make, trying to make one thing out of another. Um, I had a really bad repetitive stress injury. I mean, I have scoliosis, so I'm prone to these kinds of things in my hands. Um, and so when I first went to graduate school, um, I had this awful flare-up of that, and so for the first two years, I couldn't really use my hands. I couldn't lift more than five pounds. I wasn't. I had to use voice recognition, and that was back when it was really, really in its infancy. Um, and it meant that I mainly wasn't writing poems. I realized how kinetic that activity was for me, um, and also just physically, I didn't. I needed to save my voice to talk into my computer to write my papers. I needed every every bit of capacity I had, and so I would sit in different places in my apartment. Um, and I would think about this poem that Maeve Magookian, this like crazy beautiful Irish poet wrote called The Sofa. And I would try to reimagine the apartment as that poem. And so it was like, okay, so if this apartment is that poem, what needs to change? And it was like moving things, right? That soffit isn't there, that wall isn't there, the finish on that is gone. Like that, that angle of light coming through that window, that's wrong, we've got to move that around, the roof line needs to change, all this stuff. And um, it was like a meditation, right? I got, in two years um, of doing this, probably almost every day, um, I got to about the fourth line of the poem. <laughs> 
I feel like it's really generative because it's because it's so hard, right? And that we can't translate it really easily. Like the building blocks, the materials of cities, right, are different, and and that's yeah. that's why it's worth trying. <laughs> if it's okay, I'd like to see if we have any questions or comments from anyone here, Carmine. So thank you for your contributions, very, very interesting. Um, I'd like to ask a question to Nicole. Um, how important is history in your work? Like, uh, do you base your work on some roots, like uh, in, in music history, or, or you are kind of not really related to that, like that, this kind of question? And especially if you do, like classical music, like contemporary classical music, do you do you use, in any sense, this kind of, you know, uh, content? That almost felt like two questions um, because uh, <laughs> with classical music I have a, a big history with it. Um, I studied the classical flute. Um, I played in orchestra for five years, a professional orchestra, and I played in a ballet orchestra. <laughs> and so that experience of absorbing that sound, and then, you know, my my mother listened to a whole, you know, range of music, which was mostly jazz and soul and R&B, and then my dad only listened to classical music. So just having all that kind of just put inside of you, you know, definitely informs what you create. You know what I mean? All those different influences mix around. Um, but in terms of the question about history, I think I, you know, when I was really first starting to make albums and like started my group, Black Earth Ensemble. As a flute player, it, I always I felt like I had a strange relationship to jazz history. <laughs> but it, of course, the flute is an old instrument and it has histories in all different cultures, you know what I mean? So the flute itself has a, its own history where I've been influenced by different flute playing traditions around the world, but then in jazz specifically, I um, felt some kind of need. I, there was a time where I felt a need to kind of like sh show some connection to that, to the jazz history. And to, I remember my first album was Vision Quest, and I had strings and a rhythm section and me. And they were like, well, we don't know what kind of music this is, but it, you know. And I wanted them to recognize it as jazz. So I was like, so I brought in a saxophone and a trumpet and <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was it was important for me to create music where I would, you know, like you talked about like writing a poem in response to another poem. Like I was writing songs in response to Mingus and in response to Ellington, in response to, you know, these different musicians, um, to Sun Ra and, you know, the people that really had an impact on me. So in that sense I think the history has been important with AACM in general, which I haven't brought up at all, but I'm a member of the AACM. But most musicians, especially the elders, it's like important, like you're supposed to know, you're supposed to know the tradition before you start, you know, breaking the boundaries and breaking all the rules and everything like that. So I started out breaking all the rules in the first place, but it was also, I was always listening, you know, and always studying 
that tradition specifically. Um, but it was important for me to make my own music because as who I was, improvisation represented something really important of, like for me to be free and for me to have to play tunes all the time was not going to be free. Like, and I was not going to be able to express what I wanted to express. So that's really what drove me to compose. Sorry the answer was so long. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Anyone else? Hi. Uh, if I could, a quick anecdote and then a question. So the anecdote is that, I don't know if anyone knows, this morning uh, Francis Fukuyama, the political uh, scientist, gave a sort of workshop talk at the law school. And I'm getting this sort of like cross-faded mirror experience because it was it's pretty much the same problem that they were trying to talk about and there was some like fierce debate in the Q&A. But um, basically that it seems like contemporary American culture has become fragmented. Um, he sort of identifies us as ident identity politics in that way. But um, in the end for him also there was, and most people seem to agree, there needs some kind of coming together. And then it was, how was the, how do you put it, like national civic identity or something. And this is about institution building and things like that. And um, it's, it seemed like almost the polar opposite to what we're talking about here. And there was a point too where he mentioned that filmmakers and artists can build stories and senses of identity, but really you need like lawmakers and uh, to like actually build some, so it's you know very different sense of what it means to be you know collectivity. But um, and it was just kind of interesting as a grad student because I can move around this campus. <laughs> so in the morning down. Uh, Whereas that, like that side, you get a room full of people who are, you know, um, like training to work in government or to influence from that direction, and then come and see this. This is a bit long, but uh, my question to all of you um, is: I wonder how you feel like um, over the course of your careers, the way that you sort of shift or employ your vital or creative energies has changed, whether there's sort of like moments of epiphany where the way that you work changes a lot or people you encounter who made you rethink that. I can just jump in and say, I'm really interested in not just collaboration with musicians, but, but collaboration like interdisciplinary, like I'm really fascinated with interdisciplinary work. And I, that's something that I was turned on to a long time ago, but it seems more possible now for some reason. But I also, I mean, the thing about the Mandorella Awakening, I didn't get to say much about it, but my dream would be if people from all different types of fields like whether it was green architecture or, you know, like eco-sustainability or, you know, like, uh, I don't know what you call, like when people are not doing mono-agriculture but they're doing organic, um, like human-centered agriculture. If all those people were coming together to be creative and so that we can actually see what an alternative life can be because this is ending, like this whole Western way of doing things, it's like going down the dead end. So we really do have to change quickly 
but it's we're still kind of asleep right now. So I feel like the arts has a has a role to hopefully get us to imagine something else. And so in that sense, I feel the more we collaborate, we can do that. So that would be a change from maybe when I started. Um, first, let me quickly reference your first point, your anecdote, without going too much into it. Um, I, I, I would disagree with a lot of that thinking. Um, you can't bring people together into a civic national collective if, if you don't respect them or listen to what they say or acknowledge their histories of subjugation. And if you write off their oppression and marginalization as crying victim, there's no way you're gonna build a collective that's worth being a part of. For me, cha what's changed my work a lot is kind of simple, which is that instead of just spending most of my early career writing about music, um, I started me being able to convince musicians. <laughs> like tonight, I um, mean Sunday. Yeah, to, to, to let me write and perform with them. Um, and that started with just the idea of like what would happen if as a academic or scholar or writer, I'm on stage reading or write or, or kind of reading and performing what I'm writing with the musicians that are, have inspired that writing. Um, and how does that change my accountability as a writer? How does that change the way that I deliver my work? And that's been something now for the last 10 years I've been doing almost constantly and it's just been game changing for me. It's also meant that I start singing all the time out of nowhere, which is not, my, my wife's a singer and I was like, yeah, don't, don't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, um, but it, it's, it's meant that I've had to think about my own craft and the, own, the, the musicality of what I'm writing um, with the people who are making that music and it's, it's, a, it's a, been a great challenge. Um, and also to get musicians to, to, there's a lot of trust to get people to trust you. I mean, in most of the cases, they're people I've gotten to know over the years, but with Nicole, we never had met. And the fact that she was willing, like, all right, <laughs> like I, I was like, I, you, know, I had to look I, you, you, you did you research, think. I know, um, but but still, we had never even in person really, really met, and and that that uh, that's a, a real gift to have people say, okay, I'm willing to try this out with you. There's a trust there that's that's really beautiful and important. I was really focused on craft issues, and I thought about them very locally. I think I, one of the things I was reflecting on getting ready for the panel was um, how I used to be completely superstitious about what I would write with. I got, um, and a lot of people just have like their specific pen that you know they always use. I hated the idea of even potentially getting trapped into that. I'm like, what if the pen isn't there? So I made myself shift my tools and where I was writing and how I was writing and all that, and, and I was really, um, I was really focused on very local kinds of things. What has changed for me over time is realizing that so what seems to be so much more important now, um, decades in, is um, orienting a whole life around making. Like that's, that's what matters. Um, I often give my graduate students copies of Sonia Lubomirsky's book, The How of Happiness, because I think we can train ourselves and learn how to build happiness as well. It's part of it is craft knowledge, it's technique, it's knowing the history of the field, but it's that. It's also, um, I love Kelly McGonigal's book, The Willpower Instinct. It's because that's also been really important, how to be a more resilient human. 
um, so I can be a better maker. So that's, that's one big energy shift that's happened. Great, thank you. I think it's time to maybe carry on the conversation more informally at the reception. So I hope you'll all join us and please join me in thanking our fabulous panelists. Thank you, everybody. Okay.